Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit lifepointpb.com. Now, turn with me over to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, and you can also stick a finger or a pencil or whatever you've got to mark in your Bible uh, over to, uh, to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Matthew 27 and Psalm 22. We're looking at the cross again and these statements that Jesus made on the cross. The first three we've already talked about. There's a beautiful pattern in here of the heart of Jesus and the care that he shows for people. He begins on the the very first first words that he speaks. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Um, There's a forgiveness. There's this heart of forgiveness that he has toward his enemies. Which was all of us, by the way. Scripture says we were all his enemies. Then there is the care and concern that he shows for the guilty. For the one who was condemned right beside him who was actually guilty. And the love that he displays when he says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Then he demonstrates his love for his mother. This this human love, this familial love. He demonstrates when he says, Mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Today we get to what is probably the most controversial of the phrases that Jesus spoke. There's probably more argument or more discussion, disagreement over this one than any of the seven. Because today we get to, to, in Matthew 27, it's also over in Mark 15, it's recorded there, but we get to this phrase where it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You say, well, what argument is there over that? Well, there are legitimate questions that people ask for example if jesus is god how is he asking the question my god my god why have you forsaken me didn't he already know again it's a reasonable question and there are some reasonable answers to that i don't really want to go there in the message today because the scripture doesn't speak to it a whole lot there are some there's some discussion some who would say jesus wasn't forsaken that god didn't really forsake him um, because God doesn't forsake us. He doesn't even forsake us now. Even because of sin, he doesn't forsake us. Um, there's still grace that, is, that, is, that he's willing to give to us. And so there, they, there, this argument comes over, was he really forsaken or not forsaken? All I know is he said he was forsaken. All right? Um, you can get in all the theological nuances of it if you want to, but the scripture, Jesus said he was forsaken. As a matter of fact, I will tell you my belief based on what I understand of Scripture, Jesus was the only one who's ever been completely forsaken. The only human being. You may feel God forsaken at times because of what you're going through and your emotions and your experiences. But the Scripture says in Hebrews that He will never leave us or forsake us. So we may feel that way, even though it's not actually true. I believe that Jesus actually was forsaken completely. Why? Because the guilt and the shame and the condemnation, the penalty, all of it that we deserve was poured out on him. All of it. The wrath of God, of a just God. And by the way, it wasn't just because he's angry. God is just in his righteousness and in his anger. And all of that wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ. For your sake, for my sake. Look at Matthew 27 with me. 
We're going to begin down in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, what time is the sixth hour? Noon, right? Noon. The Jewish kept time based on these hours, and so the day began at 6 a.m. Really, it began at 6 p.m. the night before, but they would go in these incremental stages. But when they say the sixth hour, they're talking about noon. 6 a.m. would have been the first hour. Noon would have been the sixth hour. So from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So from noon to three, it was dark. It wasn't a sandstorm. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't some other freak of nature. It was a supernatural working of God. It was dark when it was supposed to be the brightest. It was dark. And about the ninth hour, so about three o'clock, after three hours of darkness, and apparently silence, sometimes we don't talk about this, but nothing else is recorded for us in those three hours. If Jesus said anything else, it's not recorded for us. So there's silence and darkness. And I would suggest to you incredible aloneness. Loneliness like you have never known. Loneliness. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the, that's the Aramaic. Some say, is that Greek or Hebrew? It's neither. It's Aramaic. Now, I want to tell you one of the other controversies about this passage. There are some who say that the translation of that Aramaic phrase is not, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They say the translation of that Aramaic phrase is, my God, my God, I have fulfilled my destiny. Well, that's interesting, <coughs> except Scripture doesn't say that. And I don't know Aramaic, so I can't, I can't confirm or deny any of that. But the Scripture says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We sometimes focus a lot on what Jesus suffered physically, and rightly so. I'm sure you've heard or read the medical description of what took place when Jesus was crucified. It is, uh, how many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ? It may be as close to portraying on film the reality of the cruelty that was done to Jesus. I mean. It's almost unimaginable. As a matter of fact, I have seen The Passion of the Christ one time. I watched it one time. I have not seen it again. I, I wept, and I couldn't stop weeping. I couldn't. It, it, was, it was very, very graphic. And, and it's an interesting thing because we can see graphic stuff in our culture. We see it all the time. But somehow or another, the reality of this, the truth of this, this isn't fiction or make-believe in Hollywood. This is reality. And it was worse than portrayed on film. And we see that and we think about it. But do you ever think about the other part of that? See, I, I have a personal belief here that, that the greatest suffering that Jesus did wasn't the physical suffering that he did, but it was the emotional suffering. It was the suffering of his soul that he did there. I want you to think, the penalty, you think, oh, the penalty for our sin was laid on him. That's the reason he had to be beaten. He was scourged. I mean, he, was, he had the crown of thorns on his head. He's nailed to a cross. All of these things, that's the penalty of our sin being poured out on his body. I want you to understand that all the guilt, all the shame, all the bitterness, all the condemnation, all of the fear, all of the negative, everything that we consider a negative emotion to the nth degree was also poured on Jesus. He bore that as well. 
He bore every bit of it. Not just the penalty of it, but he bore all of the underlying guilt and shame that was meant for you and me. Have you ever experienced guilt and shame? So you know, you get a little taste. Condemnation. And the enemy loves to bring condemnation. But all of that was laid on Jesus, and he didn't deserve it. He took it for you and me. He'd never known it. He'd never known separation from the Father. He'd never known not being in this perfect communion with the Father. He'd never known anything else until the cross was poured out on him. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did he not know? No, he knew. Obviously, he knew. The scripture is very clear. He knew from the moment he came to this planet what he was here to do. He knew. The scripture says that he said several times in the course of his ministry, this is why I'm here. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to be taken there to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again three days later. He knew. He knew what was coming. It was not a surprise to him. So why does he go, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are lots of theories, lots of discussion over this. I don't like to get into theories and discussion because yours is as good as mine when it comes to theories. I just like to look at the scripture. The, the, the Bible is its own best commentary. The other day I was given a ride to Austin and Andrew somewhere. They were in my car and I had a Thompson Chain reference Bible in the back seat. And so Andrew picked it up and they were looking at it and he goes, what's a Thompson Chain reference Bible? And I said, a great distraction when you're in a service. That's what it is. Uh, matter of fact, I quit carrying mine to service years ago because it's designed where you look at a verse and then it will give you references to other verses. And so you go there and then it gives you references to other verses and, and then the references to other verses. I mean, it's almost never ending. It just keeps going. Why? Because there's a belief and it's a, a right belief. The Bible is the best commentary on itself. The Bible explains itself. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is he saying this? Well, the, the best commentary we have on that is the scripture itself because Jesus is quoting directly from somewhere else. Go back with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. This was a favorite psalm among the Jewish people. This would be like me coming into a gathering like this and saying, for God so loved the world that he gave. And you can go on from there, right? You'd finish it. You know it. That was true of Psalm 22. It was the beginning of these songs, uh, of these messianic psalms. And they had a very special place in the heart of the Jewish people. So when Jesus begins, at the very beginning of Psalm 22, he begins to quote how this psalm starts. My God, my God, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did he do? He immediately took everyone who was there and listening and everyone who would hear about this, every Jewish person, he took them immediately back to Psalm 22. I want to share with you why I believe Jesus spoke this on the cross. We have seen his love demonstrated toward his enemies, toward the guilty, toward his family. Now we're seeing his love. It's almost like this last proclamation, if you will. Jesus is preaching the gospel again from the cross. Would you believe that I am the Messiah? I am the one that you're looking for. And I want to remind you of something that you know very well 
something you're very familiar with. And it is going, and some, by the way, something that was written seven, eight hundred years earlier. And it's going to again reinforce the fact that I am who I say I am. Look with me at Psalm 22. The first verse is Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And he goes on and he's pouring out his heart. And there is a dual application of this psalm because you've also got the psalmist who's pouring out his heart. And so there is the messianic portion of this where it is describing Jesus. There's also the application, the, the part of it where it applies to you and me, where we also pour out our heart and feel like we're forsaken and that God's not moving. He's not coming to, he's not coming to our defense. He's not moving on our behalf. So you've got both of those things going on at the same time in this, in this psalm. I want you to skip down with me to verse 5. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. See, this is both true of Jesus because he trusted in the Father. They had a plan together, a plan of redemption. And there was a trust in that. No one, Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down willingly. Even when he's on the cross, the scripture says he could have called multitude, thousands upon thousands of angels to come and rescue him. He didn't why he was in complete submission to the plan he and the father and the spirit were in agreement with this plan this plan of redemption but i want you to look at next verse i am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people all who see me i'm going to come back to verse six by the way i'm going to skip it right now but i'm going to come back to it in just a minute all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. This is literally a description of what was happening at the cross. They mocked him. They were wagging their head at him. They were, make, they were forming things with their mouth. Can you see it? Jesus begins to quote Psalm 22. And the people around, being Jewish and, and being familiar with this, they keep going. They, know what it, they, they keep on quoting with him, just like I did with John 3.16 a while ago. They start going through it. Wait a second. Psalm 22 says that he's crying out and, and then the people are mocking him. He's being crushed. He's being scorned. He's being despised. They're wagging their heads. Notice verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Actually, that is a perfect example of what's happening right here because when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have they forsaken me? They, they spoke up, the crowd spoke up and said, hey, let's wait and see if Elijah comes to help him. Now, they misquoted what Jesus said here because he wasn't saying Elijah. They either did it out of mocking or just mishearing, not hearing. But they said, let's wait and see if Elijah comes and shows up to help him. Let's see. I mean, he says he's the son of God. Let's see if he can do anything about this. I mean, if he really is the son of God, come on down off the cross and we'll believe. They're mocking him. Psalm 22, 700, 800 years prior to this event, is foretelling this is what's going to take place. And they're going through it in their mind, and they're thinking, wait a second, I've, I've seen this before. You ever had deja vu? Yeah? Isn't that weird? Isn't deja vu weird? It's like, I know I've seen this before, but I've never been here. But, and, and it's a weird sort of thing. I don't understand it, can't explain it, don't try to. But it happens. You have to feel like the Jewish people are like, this seems like deja vu. I mean, like, we've never been here, but we've been here. 
And then they begin to make the connection. Wait a second, Psalm 22 is describing this. Jump down with me to verse 13, or verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Look, verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. When they stuck a spear in his side, what happened? Water and blood came out. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Now, the Scripture says that Scripture was fulfilled. None of his bones were broken. That doesn't mean they weren't out of joint. My heart is like wax. You read the medical description, and that begins to make more sense. But this water and blood, this building up of fluid in Jesus' body, and then when, his, and when he's pierced, his side is pierced, that water and blood that's running out. Again, they're standing there, they're watching this, and they're thinking, wait a second, Psalm 22 said this would happen. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, like a piece of pottery. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Literally, when you understand the medical consequences of crucifixion, you get so dehydrated, literally your tongue does swell and stick to the inside of your mouth. May have been one of the reasons why. Maybe they thought he said Elijah because he couldn't pronounce it clearly. We don't know. The scripture doesn't give us enough insight into that. For dogs encompass me, a company of evil endures encircle me. Now I want you to notice this, verse 16. They have pierced my hands and feet. What is he describing? Crucifixion. This is 800 years before crucifixion is invented. There is no crucifixion when the psalmist writes this. The Romans are not the world power. I can almost imagine David, this psalm is being communicated, and people are like, what is this hands and feet business being pierced? I don't know, it's just what the Lord said. But 800 years later, they knew exactly what it meant. This is crucifixion. Do you see? Can you see the aha moment happening with them? The, the light coming on, it's like everything that the psalmist predicted is happening right now. And what is Jesus doing? Why did, he, why did he bring them back to this? It is a last appeal. Believe me when I tell you I am Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am exactly who I say I am. It doesn't look like it right now, but I am who I say I am. And by the way, following Jesus will always be that way. It will rarely ever look like you're following Jesus. It will rarely ever look like you think it's supposed to look. But it doesn't make it any less true. I told you I'd go back to verse 6. I want to read you something that's really interesting about verse 6. Because he says, I'm a worm and not a man. It's an interesting word there. That same Hebrew word is used in Exodus chapter 25, verse 4, I believe it is, when, when their instructions are being given for the tabernacle and they're to bring gold and silver and all the different things. But they were also to bring material that was dyed certain colors. And one of those colors was crimson or scarlet. And that's how it's translated in Exodus 25, bringing these materials, and it lists different colors, including among them crimson or scarlet. 
It's the same word that's translated worm in, in Genesis 22. And there's a reason why. Did you know there is such a thing as a crimson worm? By the way, for you parents out there, if you want something really interesting, you can get it on Amazon. There's a little booklet for children called The Crimson Word or The Crimson Worm, um, the gospel story, and it kind of walks you through. I'm going to give you a little bit of that this morning. This was an article written by a man named Calvin Ray Evans. He said the word worm referred to in our text is unique in Scripture. In the Hebrew, it is a particular female worm which is also called the crimson worm. It is not until you begin to study the characteristics and the life cycle of this crimson or scarlet worm that you begin to see the tremendous truth revealed by the scripture. Here are just a few things that I have discovered about the crimson worm and how it relates to the death of Christ on the cross. First, the crimson worm climbs on the tree all by itself. Nobody forces it to get on the tree. Isn't that a picture? Nobody made Jesus. He went to the tree all of his own accord. It willingly searches out placing the oak, which is symbolic of its destiny. Then, by its own choice, it climbs on the tree. Please understand, nobody forced Christ on the cross. He did it by choice. He could have called angels from heaven to release him, but he died alone for you and me. The crimson worm knows when it climbs on the tree that it will not come back down alive. It is going to the tree to birth a family, and to do that, it must die. Jesus, knowing all things, still was willing to die on the cross to birth a family. Here's his family. And not just us. Once on the tree, the crimson worm then attaches itself to the tree. It makes sure it's secure before the body of the worm will eventually be shelter for the young, which are born. Remember, it was not nails that held our Savior to the cross, it was his love. That same love and broken body of our Lord is the protection for us against all the winds of, of heresy and unbelief of the ages. The worm will then lay its eggs and shelter them under her body. During the birthing process, she, she secretes a crimson fluid or gel. The scarlet fluid, by the way, if you look this up online in images, you can see pictures of it. It's really cool. Scarlet fluid covers her entire body and all the eggs she lays. It also leaves a stain on the tree which will never fade away with the passing of time. <laughs> I love it. Please, he puts in parentheses, please excuse me if I stop right here. You may need to pause to join me. As I stop right here to shout, uh, you may need to pause and join me too. Uh, the blood of Jesus stained him, the cross, and all of us which are saved. The blood will never lose its power. After dying to birth the family, something amazing takes place. For a period of three days, the worm can be scraped from the tree and the crimson gel can be used to make a dye. This is the dye that's used to make material crimson or scarlet. That dye was the same which was used in the tabernacle and in the garments of the high priest. That's Exodus 25. By the way, he doesn't say this, but I want to remind you of something. It takes three days for the period of three days. And in Exodus, right before the Passover, it was, there was darkness for three days. And then the Passover lamb was sacrificed. You go back to Exodus again. You'll read that in the Passover story. Three days, it was dark. We come to the New Testament. For three hours, it is dark. And then the Passover lamb is sacrificed. The lamb who takes away the sins of the whole world. 
Folks, God is so precise. We're going to spend all of eternity. He's going to open up and think, he's, he's going to look at me like, Troy, you thought you knew your Bible. You didn't know anything. Let me show you how it all fits together. On the morning, but until then, I take what I don't understand by faith. Until that day. On the morning of the fourth day, the worm has pulled the head and tail together and is now in the shape of a heart on the tree, but it is no longer crimson. It is now a wax, which is as white as snow. What verse comes to your mind? I mean, immediately, right? That verse comes to our mind, though you be red like crimson, it should be as wool, or be white as snow. They can still harvest the wax and use it. It makes a shellac, a preservative of the wood. The crimson worm is also very fragrant when it's crushed. No other life in history has sweetened the pathway of humanity like the crimson worm who was crushed for our sins, Jesus. In my study, I also was blessed to discover the crushed worm is used to make medicine. Oh, bless his name. He is the healer of our diseases. He is the only one that has the power to break the curse of sin and save our soul from destruction. I do not believe for one moment it was a mistake that he called himself a worm. He is the crimson worm who died and was crushed for you. It is our sincere prayer that all who read this sermon will stop and reflect on the price he paid to redeem our soul. He died for you. Will you live for him? There are no accidents in Scripture. There are no accidents when Jesus cried out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was calling their attention back to something they knew very well, which described in detail how Messiah would die. Jesus was clearly declaring, I am him. I am Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the Savior. I am the Lamb who was slain. I am the one who can bring you back into relationship with the Father, the way you, what you were created for, and you cannot do on your own. I will do that for you. I will take everything that you deserve, all the punishment, all of the shame, all the guilt, all the condemnation, all of it, I take it all. I don't think even though we've experienced some of these things in a way, I don't think we can even begin to comprehend the depth, the weight of what Jesus felt when it was all applied to him. I don't think we can. I have two applications for this message for you this morning. Number one, if you don't know him, what's stopping you? If you don't have relationship, if you haven't believed What's stopping you? I mean, really, I'm asking the question. I'm not being critical of that. I'm asking, what's holding you back? What's standing in the way? Is it someone? Is it a relationship? Is it a belief, a thought? Is it fear? What is it that's standing in the way? Identify it. 
Don't run from it. Don't tiptoe around it. Declare, this is what's standing in my way. And then bring that along with yourself and say, Lord, here I am. I, can't, I don't even know how to deal with this thing that's standing in the way. I'm trusting you. I'm crying out to you. You say, Troy, I just can't believe all of this. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Do you remember the first time that you fed your little child cake or ice cream? Do you remember the expression on their face the first time you did that? I do. As a matter of fact, we've got a picture of Andrew when he was one year old, and he got a cake, and he's wearing it. I mean, it's from ear to ear and everywhere, and I mean, he's having a good time with it. He still eats that way, but um, <laughs> I'm kidding. It's, it, it's a little better now. He eats as fast, he just doesn't eat quite as messy. But um, but I remember with each one of them, you give them that. My dear departed mother once put Yoo-Hoo, the chocolate drink, in my six-month-old daughter's bottle without asking her mother. That's what grandmas do, that's right. <laughs> I believe the grandparents get taken over by aliens. <laughs> they are not the people that raised us. No, no, they get taken over by aliens. Um, I can't prove that biblically, but I believe it to be true. But you should have seen her face. I mean, she never wanted a regular bottle after that. It's like, no, 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 no. I want whatever grandma put in the bottle. You remember their faces. What they would have probably rejected and never believed. They're like, oh man, this was, this is, I never imagined anything could be this good. I want to tell you that if the enemy's standing against you and lying to you and saying you can't go there, it's going to be bad, or you, you don't know what's in store, I promise you it's way better than cake or ice cream. Amen. It's way better. It's way more. That's my first cry to you today. If you don't know him, today's the day. Today. You say, I don't know how to do it. In a moment, we're gonna, we'll dismiss, we'll have prayer partners here at the front, and you just come up to them and say, I want to know him, and I don't know how. And they'll pray with you. They'll talk with you. They'll walk at a pace that you're comfortable to walk with, because again, this is between you and God, not you and them. They'll help you where they can, and pray for you when you can't go any further. But for those of us who know Jesus, look at the rest of Psalm 22. Look at verse 19. Oh, by the way, we didn't even finish. Um, we stopped at verse 16. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Why could they count his bones? Because they stripped all his clothes off of him. Um... They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, <laughs> you're, they're there. They're thinking, this is happening right now. But look at verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. 
Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. This is where Jesus had to pay the price that he paid, and he knew it. And that deliverance was coming on the other side. Death was happening here. Crucifixion was happening here, but resurrection was coming. And he knew that. For you and me, the same is true. We may be experiencing difficulty. Death, if you will. A lot of times death to our own self. We're going through that, but resurrection is coming power of God is coming. It's there. It's available for us to cry out for. Notice what he says. Deliver my soul from the sword and my precious life from the power of the dog. This is not your pet dog. This is why we've talked about this before. These are the wild dogs of the Middle East. All right? Not your pet. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I'm going to tell who you are and what you've done. I'll praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And by the way, I'm the offspring of Jacob too because I was grafted in. So this includes me. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Jacob, or offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried. Can I tell you something? Because Jesus endured what you and I can never even imagine, he really is friend of the brokenhearted. He really is one who understands all of your sorrow. He understands all of your hurt. He understands all of it. And he says, call out to me. I don't believe that Jesus cried out because he didn't know what was happening. I believe what he did on the cross, he did so they would understand and we would understand he is Messiah. But I think he also did it as, a, as a, an example to you and me that when we're in this place the only one who has answers for those life's toughest question is God himself nobody else can answer those questions for you but God himself and Jesus says come to me I am God come to me with your hard questions they don't offend me they don't throw me off my game come and ask pour out your heart let me minister let me walk alongside let me embrace you let me give to you what you need. He goes on, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He's the king, and he rules over the nations. He didn't look like a king that day. I mean, Pilate put it up there, behold, king of the Jews, but he didn't look like a king. He was. He didn't look like it. One day all will recognize him as king. The question is, Will we do it today before that day? Will we do it when at times it still looks like he's not king? All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship, but him before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the ones who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. He has done it. I declare to you, a generation that was to come, that at that time was unborn, he has done it. He has done it. I want you to bow your heads with me.
It's the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning. Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered doing life on your own terms? Doing it your own way? And said, I believe that he is my only hope. I have no hope but him. If not, then today I would ask again, what's stopping you? What's stopping you? And if you have believed, but you are laboring under burdens, emotional anguish, I would ask you what's stopping you from crying out just like Jesus did just bring it asking him the hard questions listening for his answer what's stopping you I have no doubt in my mind that Jesus said what he said when he said it that throughout all of history it would be a reminder to us go back to Psalm 22 there's a pattern there for you believe me. Right now, I want you to do something. As they play and sing, why don't you just talk to him? Just talk to him. See, and listen to what he may say to you.